Well, you know what I think. I'm a Christian. I'm not going to deny that. I do want everyone to feel comfortable. That's why I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. Please do not go religious. Somebody's going to hell over there. He better not. Even the devil will speak the truth for, for his own purposes. This is war. Accept it. Back to Jerusalem podcast. Yeah, I'm back and I'm armed with righteousness. With your host, Eugene Bach. He just seems like he's got it all figured out. He's a righteous dude. Yep. Hello and welcome to another Back to Jerusalem podcast. I'm Eugene Bach, your host for this time, and I'm coming to you live on delay from somewhere within the borders of Sweden this time. And I want to do a special podcast. You know, oftentimes we we like to think about who the most deadly person in the world has been, who's been the, the world's most deadly dictator, who's been the most tyrannical leader. We think of people like Genghis Khan. We think of people like Pol Pot. Uh, I mean, today we have modern day examples of people that do quite a bit of killing just on their own. I mean, we have Kim Jong-un in North Korea. We have the Ayatollah in Iran. One of the things that ticks me off, like I get really, really irritated when I see the Che Guevara t-shirts being worn by some moron that thinks that they're educated about freedoms within South America when that was one of the most deadly murderers in South American history. Can I find many other examples? Yes, I can. Today, the Castro family, Fidel Castro's brother in Cuba, extremely dangerous, deadly individuals, but they were not the most tyrannical. Today, I just want to look at really quick which tyrannical dictator killed the most Christians in the history of the world? Does that person live today? If they don't, when did they live? Who were they? It's not such a straightforward question when, when specifically looking at who killed the most Christians in, in the history of the world. I mean, many of us would probably start to look at the Caesar of Rome, Nero. Right? I mean, he's very notorious for taking Christians and their families, sending them out into the lion's den, so to speak, where they were ripped apart by different wild beasts like dogs, lions, bears in the cathedrals of Rome. It was done for the entertainment of the masses. It's even said that Nero liked to keep his garden lit with the bodies of burning Christians at night. But if we look at those that have killed the most Christians, I don't know if we can look at Nero. Not because he didn't want to kill more Christians, he just didn't have the capacity. He didn't have the modern day technology that would assist him in killing more people in a more efficient way. Unfortunately for him, he lived 2,000 years ago, which means that he had to rely on very mundane mechanical technology at the time to, to, to kill ma a massive number of people. And it just wasn't efficient. You know, whenever I read about the attacks on Nanjing in China by the Japanese, I'm reminded of the amount of time that it must have taken for Roman soldiers to kill as many people as they did in the amount of time that they did took a lot of energy, took a lot of endurance, took a lot of strength. When the Japanese went into Nanjing, they found themselves overwhelmed with the time that it took, the energy that it took, the, the, the investment that it took in order to kill massive numbers of people. In fact, there are stories of Japanese soldiers that lined up Chinese citizens and they would have competitions. How many people could you behead in a minute? And who could be the winner of that? They beheaded so many people that they would swing a sword until they were completely exhausted. Their muscles would ache with pain and they would have to pause to take a break, take a deep breath like a marathon runner, and then continue on. When we're looking at the... the, the tyrannical leader in history that killed the most Christians, it's very hard to say who killed the most Christians. So instead of doing that, I'm going to take data that is probably a little bit more sustainable in a conversation like this. 
And instead of looking at just who targeted Christians, I'm going to look at who was the biggest mass murderer in the history of the world. Because we don't always know who was killed because of their religion. We don't always know how many Christians were killed because, to be quite frank, whenever there are times of extreme persecution, Christians are very well known to go underground. And so those that end up being killed are oftentimes off the books and not really known. So in order to kind of get to an answer, I'm going to ask this simple question. Which dictator killed the most people? Ask most people on the street that same question. Ask anybody. Just walk up randomly and say, which dictator killed the most people? If I say that to you, what are you going to say? Who killed the most people? Oftentimes, the immediate knee-jerk reaction is just to say, Hitler, Hitler did it. It's kind of cliche for us to blame every evil deed in the world today enacted by a certain person to be related to Hitler. For instance, if Trump did anything when he was the president of the United States, he was immediately labeled as Hitler. If President Joe Biden does anything bad, people immediately like to refer to him as Hitler. It's He's just the most notorious evil person that everybody loves to hate. And so it's very easy to call other people Hitler to the point when people really are like Hitler, they're not, it's, it's not as effective. We use it so quickly. We use it so easily. His name, Hitler's name will forever ring notorious throughout all of history. And for good reason. I mean, he did extremely atrocious deeds. He's known for killing 6 million Jews and 5 million people of many different religions and other ethnicities. We know that he killed people for being homosexual. We know that he killed people for being mentally ill. He killed people for being of, a, of an undesirable ethnicity because he believed in the master race. Why? Because he believed in science. Which is a little side point that I, I would like to say. I remember when I was in university, I was in Palomar College in Southern California, San Marcos, California. I was in Palomar College and I can remember being in my science class and we were being taught the theory of evolution. And as we were talking about the theory of evolution, I remember asking the professor because she began to attack Christians who do not accept evolution, that this is just science. And, and in fact, what she did was she took us out. I remember we're college students, right? We're college students. And yet somehow she felt that it would be good to take us out into the yard. And, and, and she would take all of these colored little, they're almost like BBs or little round pellets. And they were different colors. If I remember right, there was like red, yellow, blue, and some other ones. And what she was trying to show us was the the way that natural selection takes place. And so what she did was she poured out in front of each group, and I think each group we had something like four or five people, if I'm not mistaken, something like that. We're college students, right? So we're out in the yard like kindergartners with these tweezers. And in, in the middle of each group, what she did was she dumped a big, you know, kind of pail of these pellets. And it was our job to collect a certain number of pellets. And so basically what she said was, um, the first round of people that collect the most, or the first round of people that collect the least amount of pellets will lose after one minute, after 60 seconds, and they have to step out. And then you keep going until there's a winner, one winner in the group. And so what she did was she said, okay, you, one person in the group, you will only collect yellow pellets and you, you will only collect blue pellets and you, you will only collect red pellets and you, you will only collect black pellets, something like that. And what we did was we selected these different kind of pellets. Well, it turns out that there was not an equal number of pellets available. So what happened was someone like me who might've gotten like yellow pellets, maybe there was only a handful and a big 
pile. So I had to really dig around looking for them. And at the end, I was the one with the least pellets and those that were able to gather more pellets were able to move on. And what she was trying to show was that throughout history, there have been different species that have been able to survive because they had an ample amount of food source or they were able to find a way to obtain an adequate amount of food source so that their species could survive. This is science. This is evolution. And one of the things that she wanted to show is that some everybody that stuck with using their tweezers were not going to be as good at collecting the pellets as those that just started to use their hands. Showing that those, and she never said that you could use your hand, you just had to figure it out. She never actually gave us rules. She told us that these are what your pellets are going to be collected by, and she would give the, the, these like tweezer things. So if you figured it out, or if you just got greedy and you started using your hands, that was allowable. I remember hearing this and realizing that if this is true, if this is science, Hitler was not wrong. Let me say that again. If natural selection is true, Hitler was not wrong. He might have been wrong on his selection of which race was the master race, but he was not wrong in the idea that not all races are equal or are the same. You see, the idea that all men are created equal comes from the idea that we are created by God. And that God gives us equal value. Therefore, if he gives me equal value, then I, as his creation, render equal value to others if I believe in him or if he lives in me. If the God who created man sees us all equally of equal value and that God lives in me and his attributes and characteristics shine through my life, then I start to mirror his ideas and teachings and beliefs. I believe that all men are created equal because I believe in God. But Hitler did not believe in God. He believed in science. He believed in evolution. He taught evolution. And he believed that there was a group of people that if sheltered from iniquities, if sheltered from impurities, if sheltered from mating with those that have not evolved as fast, as quick, as well, then they will be able to do more. They will be able to strive and reach higher goals. So those that were executed were executed in the name of science. Jews were considered to be an unclean race. They were pigs. They were varmints. They were like rats. And when they mated, when they intermingled in with the people of the, uh, of the master race, they made it impure and took it back. They biologically pulled that race back. This is what my science teacher in university was teaching me without realizing the implications in life of what she was teaching. So I raised my hand. I remember asking, have all races evolved the same? How is she going to answer that question? If it's true that you have a certain race that has lived on islands in warm weather by water for thousands of years, tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years, wouldn't it make sense that they would have evolved differently than those that had grown up in the Nordic North? Those that did not grow up on islands, those that did not grow up in warm weather, those that had to grow up in cold climates with a different food source. Wouldn't it make sense that those that grew up on islands would somehow develop the ability to breathe longer underwater with lungs that would have adapted to either holding air for a, a significant amount of time or develop some sort of almost like gills? Wouldn't it have also been logical for those that were living and thriving and surviving in the Nordic North 
thousands of miles away, both species independently developing over hundreds of thousands of years, if that is true science. Wouldn't those in the North have developed some sort of insulation, ability to fight off the cold without having to wear extra layers of clothing? Wouldn't they have been able to slow down their bodies in a way that would allow them to almost hibernate during the winter months when food is more scarce? Wouldn't that species have been more favorable more uh, and survived better? Wouldn't that have been development in evolution according to survival of the species or survival of the fittest? The science doesn't work out. In fact, ask any doctor. Ask any doctor. You can go and have a man or a woman from the tropical islands of the, the Bermuda Triangle, or you can find individuals, minority groups that have been living in the Arctic Circle for thousands of years, bring them together with one doctor, and he is able to operate on both of them the same. The heart works the same. The lungs work the same. The brain looks the same. The tongue looks the same. The bone structure looks the same. No difference. Hmm. Not exactly as scientific as you thought your little evolutional theory, huh? It goes even further than that. Certain things you think develop over time, do they? Do they? Take somebody who's been, it comes from a family of educated background people where you have, some, let's say someone from Germany. They can go for hundreds and hundreds of years of their ancestors who have been studying and reading and, and, and passing that academic knowledge on to the next person. Go and find a child in Papua New Guinea where there's been no record of proper uh, education in the way that we would think. They had never been exposed to grocery stores, never been exposed to mechanics, never been exposed to jets or rockets or planes or computers or mobile phones. None of the modern technology that we have developed over the last couple of hundred years. In fact, they still live in very bare minimum triple canopy jungles with no exposure. Take a young child out of that environment, throw them in Frankfurt, Put them in daycare, put them in kindergarten, put them in grade school, let them go to college, see if there's any difference in the intelligence level. Hundreds of years didn't make one better or one less, and neither of them are less valuable. Hitler bought into science. Hitler used science and modern technology in order to justify his slaughter of 11 million people, at least 11. The numbers that I'm using come from the, um, uh, the Holocaust Museum. So the, the numbers that I'm using come from there. So many people will say that he killed less. Some will say that he killed many, many more. But I'm just going to go with the 6 million Jews that the Holocaust Museum claims and the 5 million other minorities, religious people, um, individuals that... Hitler deemed as sexual deviance. 11 million people died because Hitler believed in science. He believed in evolution. He believed in survival of the fittest. And that's what led him to the idea of the Aryan race, a master race, a race that should be bred so that it can achieve even more for the human race, or at least the Aryan race. Hitler. As evil as he was, as flawed as his logic was, as anti-Christian as his logic was, he did not kill the most people, not even close. There was someone much more deadly than Hitler. The person that takes the mantle from Hitler is a man by the name of Joseph Stalin. After taking power in Russia in the 1920s and forcing his nation to accept government-sanctioned atheism through communism, Stalin killed at least 
9 million people through mass murder. Well, that doesn't sound like 11 million. I mean, you just said that Hitler killed 11 million. If Stalin killed 9 million, that makes Hitler a bigger mass murderer than Stalin. Oh, but Stalin was just getting going. That was just the start. That's just his stepping off point. That's, that's where he started with killing people through mass murder, forced labor camps, and famine. Why? Because he wanted to implement science. He wanted to implement atheism. He wanted to get rid of all religions. Because religions, as taught by Karl Marx, which was embraced by Joseph Stalin, almost religiously, science was the answer. Karl Marx said that religion is not science. Religion is the opiate of the masses. Karl Marx, the German philosopher that kind of is credited, well, not kind of, he is, he's credited with the, the beginnings of communism. Karl Marx started a seed in Germany that to this day killed more people than any other single religion in the world. When you talk about deadly religions, many people will say, oh, well, Christianity and their crusades, they, so many people were killed and slaughtered. We should never as Christians, and today I would say the majority of the evangelicals that I know of, they to a fault will confess the horrendous history of Christianity. The Salem witch, witch trials, the, the um, what was the, the Inquisition, uh, in the Crusades, there were horrible things that took place where those that came out to fight for honor and protection of Christianity and to bring Jerusalem back under control of the Christians after being attacked for hundreds of years by the Muslims, by the way. The Crusades didn't just pop out out of nowhere. They didn't just spontaneously arise out of Europe and a bunch of Christians got together, put on knight's armor and felt like going around killing people and said, hey, you know what I feel like doing today? Let's go cut some heads off of Muslims. That's not what happened. Islam started in the Middle East. It started in the Persian Gulf on the peninsula, the Persian Peninsula. There you have Muhammad and his marauders that started in Medina. Of course, Muhammad himself tried to get people to follow him in Mecca, but nobody followed him. His teachings didn't make any sense, and he wasn't the brightest individual. And so they rejected his teachings outright. Finally, eventually, they kicked him out of Mecca because he was trying to get people to cling to one God only. And he was appealing to the Christians, but he was perverting Christian teaching. So the Christians rejected him. He appealed to the Jews, but he was perverting Jewish teaching. So the Jews rejected him. He talked about a monotheistic God that only one God could be served. And so the people of Mecca didn't want that because so many people did their pilgrimage every year to Mecca. And his family specifically, Muhammad's family, benefited from this from the financial offerings that were given to the God of Mecca. So people would travel from far and wide to come and give their offerings. But if Muhammad started talking about this one true God and persecuted those that did not believe in the same true God, that was bad for business. And Muhammad's own family was losing money, so he was kicked out of Mecca. And he went to go lick his wounds in a place called Medina. While in Medina, he realized that the Jews and the Christians are horrible people and they need to be killed, all of them. It was there in Mecca that he was able to devise a plan that if he could just build an army and get wealth enough to equip that army, he would go back and show those people of Mecca. He was determined, I'm going to show them. And revenge is best served cold. Took him some time. The dish had cooled down by the time he returned. He was able to return because while he was in Medina, he raised up a small army of marauders that were basically pirates 
that every time a caravan would go by that had valuables, they would rob the caravan, rip the caravan of all of the people, the women, the children, the children would be made slaves, the women would become sex slaves, and the men would be killed. All of the gold and all of the treasures and the horses and everything that was a part of the caravan would then go to, to Muhammad and his friends. But not many people were willing to give their lives before there was gold. Now, Muhammad promised them gold, but until he could pay it, nobody really cared. So Muhammad did what anybody would do if he didn't have money. He began to make promises that he really couldn't fulfill. So what he did was he created a fantasy from any man that followed him and said, anybody that dies in this battle fighting together with me will get a buttload of virgins and they will stay virgins forever. If you've ever met a lonely man in the desert, you will know that this idea, this fantasy appealed to them greatly. There's a lot of men that were lonely. They said, what? Muhammad said, hey guys, listen, these caravans are coming through. We can rob them. We can take their women and you will be able to get these women right away. They will become your sexual slaves. And if you die in the process, because I'm sure they're like, well, what if I die? Then I don't get the women. No, 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 no. If you die, you still get the women. Dude, it's a win-win situation. And so as the number of caravans that were robbed build up, the wealth builds up, the number of followers that Muhammad gets builds up, finally his army is big enough that he goes back to the very city that kicked him out, Mecca, and he takes it by force. And the Muhammad that was very peaceful when he lived in Mecca the first time was not very peaceful the second time. So when he turned back around, he began to not just take Mecca, but he was like, hey, you know what? I'm pretty good at this. I'm pretty good at winning battles. I'm, I, I like the idea of taking slaves. I like the idea of raping women. I like the idea of making little children into slaves. I like the idea of everybody having to believe my religion or be beheaded. So I'm going to keep going. So he ends up taking the entire Arab Peninsula. Then from the Arab Peninsula, he begins to move in other parts of the world. Turkey, Syria, Iran, Northern Africa, and eventually into Europe. And this didn't happen overnight. This happened over a period of hundreds of years. Christian areas, by the way, Iraq was Christian. Syria was Christian. Turkey was Christian. Persian, Persia, Iran was Zoroastrian. When they came in, when the Muslims came in, they were attacking Christian cities. Take a trip one time to Istanbul. Go and learn what happened when the city fell. When Constantinople, the center of Christianity during its day, see what happened when that Christian citadel fell to Islam. Guys, it was not a peaceful kumbaya, let's all hold hands, sing around the campfire type of moment. It was brutal and evil. And the Christians kept saying, we're not going to fight back. We're not going to fight back. But land after land after land continued to be taken by Muhammad. And then finally, the Christians, after 700 years, the Christians finally, finally fought back. That is the beginning of the Crusades. That's how the Crusades started. 700 years is a long time. That's a lot of patience. That's twice the amount of time that America has even been a country. That's how much the Christians practice patience like a stinking statue. But finally, the Pope said no more. And they began to fight back. And when they fought back, they started winning. When they won, all of a sudden, all of those that were the aggressors were like, oh no, look at us. And they began to play the victim card. We are the victims here. Look how aggressive, look how mean, look how bloodthirsty these Christians are. After 700 years of taking that crap, they finally fought back. However, you can make an argument for it. You may not make an argument for it. I make an argument for it, but there may be many people who say, yep, yeah, that was the wrong thing to do to fight back. Christians were never called to arms. Christians should have never fought back. Christians should have kept doing what they 
learned from their leader, Jesus Christ, is serve without politics, without military, without armor, without fighting, giving your life, not taking lives. It's a valid argument, not one we're going to do in this podcast, but it's a valid argument. However, no matter which camp you fall in, there is zero doubt that individuals started to come in as the Crusades went on and on and on that came in for their own reason, as war usually does. And it brought about rapists and killers and greedy individuals, greedy leaders, greedy kings, greedy army commanders. And those that they conquered were ill-treated. Those that were conquered were, were raped, maimed, tortured, killed for the enjoyment of those that wore the cross on their chest. And as Christians, we should be very open about our failures, be very open about our sins. The reason I share this is that as Christians have fought throughout history, you're going to hear people talk about how evil Christians are, how many people have been killed by Christianity or in the name of Christianity. And, and then you'll have Christians that will point to Islam and say, look how many people have been killed and beheaded and raped and are still being killed even today by Muslims. And the argument will go back and forth and back and forth. All the other religions kind of get a pass. Buddhism gets a pass, but it's it's evil and violent and deadly and has been killing people throughout history in order to take lands, killing especially Christians. I've written about that in Leaving Buddha, where you can definitely see the violence that Buddhists will take on Christians today, not a thousand years ago, today. Hinduism, the same way. We can look in so many villages throughout all of India and see where Hindus come together and persecute and kill Christians. But the main argument usually is between Christians and Muslims, which one is more violent? And my answer to that question is this. You're focusing on the wrong problem. The biggest killer in the world against human beings, period, is not any religion. The biggest killer for humans throughout history has been no religion. Atheism, enforced by communist regimes in the last 100 years. Joseph Stalin embraced a philosophy that believes in evolution and evolution only and believes that religion, including Christianity, especially Christianity, is deadly for the people. So the best way to remove that is to either re-educate people that tend to be Christians or kill them altogether. Destroy all their materials, destroy all of the Bibles, destroy all of the teaching materials, destroy all of their books, destroy all of their history, destroy all of their recordings of any teaching or preaching. Anything that can be used to share with people about Jesus Christ needs to be destroyed and destroyed absolutely as quickly as possible. And in that effort, Joseph Stalin killed at least 9 million people just to start off. But guess what? Stalin continued to live after Hitler's death. He did not die. Stalin did not die until 1953. So after Hitler's death, Stalin continued to send people away to die in gulags, many of them for being Christian. The true figure of how many were eventually killed is somewhere closer to about 60 million people, according to some experts. Some say 100 million people, but for the purpose of this podcast, we're going to say 60. Now, it's not known how many Christians were actually among those 60 million people, but it was hundreds of thousands of Christians that were sentenced to die for their simple belief in Jesus Christ. Some of them died in re-education camps. Some of them died from hunger. Some of them died from execution. And it can be assumed that out of that 60 million, many of them were Christians. So Stalin 
an atheist, not a Muslim, not a Christian who led the Crusades, not a Buddhist, not a Hindu, not a Satanist. Stalin wasn't a Satanist. He didn't walk around with a five-point star on his head with a circle around it. He wasn't doing animal sacrifices to, to the, the devil in the woods somewhere. He believed in science. He believed in evolution. And in that, he found himself justified, as did those that followed him, to kill millions, tens of millions of people, at least 60 million people. So Stalin takes the trophy from Hitler. So even though Hitler's name may be on the forefront of many people's tongues, it wasn't Hitler that was the biggest killer in history. It was Joseph Stalin. Not as many people have a knee-jerk reaction to say Joseph Stalin when you ask who is the biggest killer in history. Hitler just kind of rolls off the tongue. So many movies are made about Hitler and are still being made about Hitler. How many movies are made about the evils of Joseph Stalin? Not as many. Should be more, but there's not. But Hitler and Stalin together were not able to kill as many people as one other person. Hitler and Stalin both pale in comparison to one person who is, in fact, the largest mass murderer known in the history of man. Not only did he slaughter people by the millions, but he specifically targeted Christians. For a period of three decades, and the government he left behind targets them still. That person? Mao Zedong. Uh, Mao Zedong really doesn't roll off the tongue in the same way. In fact, people praise Mao Zedong today. You ever heard of a movement in the United States called Black Lives Matter? Black Lives Matter, their founder, there's three women that founded Black Lives Matter. One of them quotes directly from the teachings of Mao Zedong's Little Red Book, the most widely printed book in the history of man outside of the Bible. She actually admired him, admired his teachings, and followed after them. There are people today that think Mao Zedong is a hero. So not a lot of people realize he was the largest, by far, mass murderer in history. First, when he came to power in 1949, his killing spree started specifically targeting nationalists, those that followed Chiang Kai-shek. And they fled to Taiwan. And that's why there's even today, there's a rift between China and Taiwan. Those that left from China and went to Taiwan said that they were the real China and they took the Chinese government with them and launched it out of Taipei. Whereas Mao Zedong said, no, we are China and Taipei belongs to us. And so that's why today there is a rift between the two. And it was uh, Henry Kissinger, who felt that it would be a very good kind of move politically to put the communist Russia off their footing if America was able to partner together with China, which is this massive country, and in and, and one way during the Cold War have an ally right on the doorstep of Russia. And so certain things were offered on the table. One of those things was that the United Nations, with the U.S. influence, would no longer recognize Taiwan as a country, but recognize China only and Taipei as a part of that one China policy. That was the focus of Mao Zedong's first killing spree, was the nationalists, those that fled to Taiwan. After the nationalists, and almost simultaneously at the same time, was Christians. Christians were targeted in mass. Anyone that was considered to be pro-Christian was an automatic anti-revolutionary and killed. 
And specifically, if we look at the dates from 1958 to 1962, this is where we have something that's called the Great Leap Forward Policy. And I've written about this extensively. I will not go into it here in this podcast, but this is a four-year period in Chinese history where at least 45 million people die in four years. 45 million people. That is unfathomable. And he didn't stop there. He continued on until his death in the late 1970s. He lived for the rest of his life sending out agents to go hunt down Christians, torture them, and have them die excruciating deaths. I wrote a book not too long ago called uh, I Stand With Christ. It is the biography of Pastor Zhang Rongliang. He's probably one of the most well-known underground house church pastors in all of China. And he vividly remembers this time under Mao Zedong's regime. When he had to watch his grandfather painfully march through the streets for being a Christian. He wrote this. I'm going to read directly from the pages of I Stand With Christ. As a young man, I watched this happen. How painful it was for me to see him march through the streets while being taunted and abused by vicious townspeople. Godfather Sun was forced to wear a tall hat made out of newspaper that resembled a western dunce cap. He looked like a helpless lamb among wolves. But unlike the sheep that I cared for, he couldn't look to me for protection. My helplessness in that situation brought me great sorrow. Before he died, Grandfather Son looked directly at me and said this, My boy, I believe the Lord will greatly use you for His purpose. I, I'm going home now. So remember this, with all your might, continue to preach the good news of Jesus Christ, whether the time is right or not. Those words stay with me even now, Pastor Zhang Rongliang said. They linger in my memory and have not been stamped out of my mind. They are the true mark of sacrifice, whether the time is right or not. 1967 marked the second year of the revolution. Christians were scattered everywhere as the persecution increased. We were all in full retreat. All church doors had been shut and no one was allowed to hold open meetings or Bible studies. We were on the doorstep of the darkest years in our history. Zhang Rongliang was not exaggerating when he said this the darkest years in our history. Because it's estimated that Mao Zedong eventually killed more than 70 million people. Wrap your mind around that for a second. 70 million people. And you have human rights groups, people that say that they want justice, individuals that say they want equality, those that say no justice, no peace are walking around quoting quotes from Mao Zedong. A tyrant who killed 70 million, not in a war against another nation, 70 million of his own people. They were Chinese citizens that spoke the same language. They looked like him. They talked like him. That wasn't racism. That was evil, controlled by Satan himself. 70 million people. To put that into perspective, Mao essentially killed more people than the entire population of Holland, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, Finland, Switzerland, Austria, Estonia, and Iceland put together. <laughs> I'm going to say that again because that's mind-blowing. To put into perspective, 70 million people that Mao Zedong killed it was the same as the entire population of Holland, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, Finland, Switzerland, Austria, Estonia, and Iceland put together, combined. Mao Zedong was essentially the largest mass murderer in the history of man. But the question is, did he kill more Christians? Hmm. This 
is the question. Because though it is easy to say that the number of people that he killed was far greater than any other tyrant in history, did he kill more Christians? Because, I mean, Hitler killed people in Europe, and at the time, Europeans had a lot higher percentage of Christians than Asia. At the time, Russia had a lot larger percentage of Christians than they had in Asia. So it could be argued that Hitler or Stalin could be the mantle carriers for the largest killer of Christians in history. But don't downplay what Mao Zedong did. Because you see, something happened in China. One thing is very clear. And that is Mao's rabid focus on killing Christians somehow during the period where he's persecuting Christians, hunting them down and having them killed, that somehow led to the largest Christian revival the world has ever seen. So to say that percentage-wise, Europe and Russia had more Christians than China, that is not to say that China did not see more Christians killed than they killed in Germany and Russia. Why? Because the number of Christians was growing as the number of deaths was increasing. Mao's desire to eradicate Christianity from Chinese history was a colossal failure. In fact, the opposite happened. Mao's anti-Christian rampage led to more Christian growth than ever thought possible. And I'm going to say something here that I think is very controversial, but I believe it. I believe that I have the data to back it up. I believe that I can prove that it's right by showing the, the, the numbers that I have in front of me. I I'm going to make a statement that I think a lot of people may not agree with, but this is what I will stand by. You ready? Mao Zedong did more for Christianity in a few years of being a tyrant than what a million missionaries could have done in a hundred years. Mao Zedong did more for Christianity as being a tyrant than what a million Christian missionaries could have done in a hundred years. Don't ask me how that's possible. Don't even ask me to defend that theologically. The idea that you need to have a tyrant in charge in order for Christianity to grow goes against every fiber of my Christian being. The idea that children have to suffer, that mothers have to lose their children, the idea that families are slaughtered in mass, the idea that blood flows so deep that it can cover your ankles, the idea that more people were killed than we see as entire populations in countries today is sickening and gross and goes against my belief. And yet there it is sitting on the table and staring back at me with myself trying to grapple with it, wrestle with it, beat it. I want to pin it down. I want to put my knees on its shoulders and do a count to 10 until it taps out, but I can't. Every time I try to grab it, it goes free. It throws me to the mat. It pins me to the ground. It puts its shoulder, its knees on my shoulders and holds me down for the 10 count, meaning that I can't explain it. I can't beat it. It beats me. I have to look at the data every time, and it's unexplainable. How can the greatest tyrant be used by God in a way to bring about his word and his revival in ways that Christian missionaries were incapable of doing? <sighs> I can't explain that. I don't even want to. I don't even, I don't even want to say what it takes for me to say that, when I look at the greatest missionaries in all of Chinese history, when I look at the Hudson Taylors, the William Careys, or for China specifically, Hudson Taylor, when I look at the Hudson Taylor, Hudson Taylor did amazing work, but he was not able to bring about the revival that Mao Zedong was. The love, the 
I, I want to be very careful here because I know that Hudson Taylor sowed the seeds of the revivals that we're seeing today. All of the Christian missionaries that came, like the Maury Munsons from Norway, the, the missionaries from the U.S., the missionaries from England, the missionaries from Scotland and Ireland that came into China preaching the good news of, of Jesus Christ. They planted the seeds, but those seeds were watered with the blood of the martyrs. And, and, and if they had been given complete freedom... I, I cannot help but to ask the question, would they not be like Japan today? You could be a missionary in Japan today. Go for it. You can get a visa. You can get complete freedom. You can stand right outside of the subway systems and, and preach the good news on a megaphone. And still they are less than 1%. Whereas in China, we're seeing places that are growing as much as 20 and 30%. Villages in Hunan, places like Wenzhou on the coast. Mao's tyrannical evilness was somehow still used by God. The stumbling block that was meant to destroy the Chinese people that was set in place by the evil one was somehow turned into a stepping stone by God himself. The very man that had one singular goal in life, which was to erase Christianity from all of China for all of human history, somehow started it launched, ignited the largest revival ever. And today in Tiananmen Square, the body of Mao Zedong lies dead. And the name of Jesus Christ is alive. Mao Zedong is dead today in China, but Jesus Christ is alive in China today. Who killed the most Christians in the history of man? I think that that is a topic that we can argue about for the ages. But what we can't argue about is that today, the number of Chinese Christians outnumbers the registered members of the Communist Party. And that's why the Communist Party is shaking in their boots. That's why the Communist Party continues to persecute Christians, which baffles me. Guys, you've been persecuting Christians for decades, and what has it gotten you? The exact opposite results of what you wanted. Why don't you try something new for a change? Why don't you allow Christianity to have freedom? Because it turns out that freedom might be the very thing that people need to become agnostic again. It may be the very thing that Christians need to become apathetic again. There's something about persecution. There's something about opposition. There's something about laying your life down for Christ that makes Christians radical. And that radical Christianity is contagious. So whenever you hear about massive persecution coming down range for against Christians, Don't be dismayed. For it might be the very spark that's needed to ignite the largest revival that's ever been. I want to thank you for downloading this Back to Jerusalem podcast. I pray that it was a benefit to you. Again, I'm Eugene Bacher, host for this time, coming to you live on delay from somewhere within the borders of Sweden. God bless. 